Father, we thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached our lives. And for those who have gone before, who have gone to every country and city and village, thank you for those who have yielded up their lives for Jesus Christ at great cost, for those who have sowed the gospel seed and seen so little fruit in their own lives, and yet in days that have followed, the gospel has run and prevailed where they once sowed it. We are conscious that you have called us to sow, that one sows and another waters the seed that is sown, but only you give the increase. And we pray in these days that you would increase within our hearts the burden to sow that seed here in our city, beyond in our nation, and to the ends of the earth, and that you would more and more make us a people who seek to water the seed in intercessory prayer and constantly look to you to give the increase. And we pray as your seed is sown among us this evening from your word, that in some of our hearts it may bear thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and even a hundredfold in its usefulness in our lives. So hear us, help us, teach us, and satisfy all of our hungers, we pray, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, just a couple of things before we begin. Um, You'll all want to surround Neil Matthias at the end of the service to discover that uh, his little grandson is doing okay, and uh, perhaps if you want to do that, you should form an orderly queue. And although we don't usually uh, exercise a lost and found office here, uh, I did happen to find a, a brass uh, button down here last Sunday night. And from past experience, I know how frustrating it can be to have to sew four buttons on there, four buttons on there, and three new buttons on there. So if this is your button, and you haven't already done that and want to clobber me for not knowing whose button this is, I do have a button in my pocket. And uh, if this beautiful button is yours, then please let me know at the end of the service. There will be no charge for returning it. <laughs> well, let's turn to our passage this evening in the letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 14 through 21, as we continue making our way through these immense three chapters, Romans 9 to 11, which have such a different flavor, don't they, from the eighth chapter of Romans on which they stand and are so stretching for us mentally and also spiritually. And you'll find the passage, and always helpful to have it open, on page 946 if you're using the Pew Bible or you have your own variant of the text of the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 10 and beginning from verse 14. Paul has just said, quoting the Scriptures, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It was a very snowy morning on January the 6th. 1850. A young boy who for some time had been anxious about his spiritual condition was on the way to church, and it was snowing in such a fashion that he decided basically he would go to the nearest church he could find. It turned out to be what they call in England a primitive Methodist church. There were only about 15 people there, and the fellow who was supposed to be preaching didn't actually turn up. Fifteen-year-old boy, anxious about his spiritual condition, handful of old people, and a man who had very rarely preached. Indeed, the boy in later days said he almost had nothing to say. And he preached on the words, Look, all the ends of the earth to him and be saved. In later life, the young man said he was obviously struggling to find something to say, but he had a text, and so he went over the text in a variety of different ways. You're supposed to look now. You're supposed to look to Christ. Don't look for the moment to the Father. You can do that later. Look to Christ now. Back to the text again. And then, when he had exhausted all of his simple resources, he pointed at the young man who'd come into the service and said, young man sitting there underneath the gallery, you look miserable. Look to Christ and live. And the young boy, that snowy, miserable morning under that very inadequate sermon, sitting under the gallery with just a handful of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And as some of you at least would have guessed, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Wasn't a famous preacher. It sounds actually as though Spurgeon never knew the name of the preacher through whom 
He came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not unusual where God is concerned. But he discovered on that night a principle that dominated his whole ministry, that right at the heart of the gospel is a free and open invitation for all to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not rocket science. It doesn't actually need an able minister of the gospel because it's not the ability or the eloquence of the minister of the gospel that does the work in the human heart. But as Paul has just been saying to these Roman Christians, as he's been thinking about the fact that Gentiles are pressing into the kingdom and his own Israel kinsmen are refusing the kingdom. He wants to emphasize it's not because of the difficulty of the gospel message. It's not because the gospel message is only for some. The gospel message is for all. All who call on the name of the Lord may be saved. And this actually, you remember, was his theme right from the beginning. We're always going back to the beginning in Romans and discovering how he really is working through and working out the teaching he'd given in these opening verses. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, whether that be the Jew first and Paul always brought the gospel to the Jew first. If there were Jews in a city he visited, whether that be to the Jew first or to the Gentile, makes no difference whatsoever. Race makes no difference. Color makes no difference. Age makes no difference. Intelligence makes no difference. All who come to call on the name of the Lord may know the power of God for salvation in their lives. And that's precisely what is breaking his heart. Because this gospel has begun to be received by Gentiles. Every single place where the Apostle Paul goes, there are at least some Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the great burden of his heart is that his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, are not calling on the name of the Lord. And he has been following this through, through chapter 9. He's been following this through chapter 10. He's going to come to some conclusions in chapter 11. But you can see how important it is to him it's almost as though he feels the gospel itself is at stake. If the very people in whose history the gospel was preserved and protected and nourished for the time of its fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah, who was himself after the flesh, one of their kinsmen, what has gone wrong is the question that he raises. And he is determined, if one can put it this way, to leave no stone unturned till he is absolutely clear what it is that has gone wrong. 
And we discover almost when we thought he had finished doing this, that he turns to it again in our passage this evening. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what has gone wrong? And you'll notice, I think, in these verses before us tonight, there are basically two little sections, verses 10 through verses 14 through 17 of chapter 10, is an explanation of how the gospel comes. And then in verses 18 and 19 to the end of the chapter, Paul probes this with two very important questions. And these are the two things I want us to look at tonight. You will understand that's a thinly veiled disguise for the fact that we'll actually look at more than this. But there are two big ideas here. First of all, there is Paul's explanation of how the gospel comes to anybody so that they may call in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then he asks questions about what that means for Israel and also for us. First of all, look at what he says in verses 14 through 17 about how the gospel comes. Now, it's fairly straightforward, I think, what he's doing here. When your Toyota started to go wrong, Mr. Toyota himself began to ask some questions. And this is always what people do when things go wrong. Presumably the physician does it when you go to him and you say, there's something wrong in my body. Mr. Toyota presumably got his people to do it when people started complaining about the pedos getting stuck in their automobiles that they had so relied on and boasted about. He works his way through the chain of delivery. He begins to say, is there something that went wrong as the automobile was delivered? Or was it something that went wrong in the factory? Or was it something that went wrong in the design? Was it something that went wrong in Japan? Was it something that went wrong with me? And he follows through to make sure that he can identify the place where things have gone wrong. And Paul is doing that here. He's saying, has something gone wrong in the way in which God has brought the gospel to his people? And so he walks through point by point, link by link, the way in which the gospel comes. And he does so in a series of questions. He says, now, People can't call on him in whom they haven't believed, and they can't believe in him whom they have never heard, and they can't hear without someone preaching, and they can't preach unless they are sent. So where is the breakdown occurred in this matter of Israel's rejection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ? Now, of course, that's his question, but it's very informative, I think, for us, isn't it? Because what he's setting before us here is the principle of how the gospel comes to anybody. He is saying, has that broken down in the case of some people? Well, how does the gospel come to anybody? Well, look at the links and the chains. The gospel Paul says in Romans, is God's gospel. 
It's the gospel of God. So first of all, the gospel comes from God, and God sends messengers to preach the gospel. Then as they preach the gospel, we hear the gospel. And as we hear the gospel, we come to believe in the gospel. And as we come to believe in the gospel, we see our need of Christ as our Savior. We see that Christ is an altogether adequate Savior for us. And so we call upon the name of the Lord, and we are brought into this new relationship with Jesus Christ that Paul has called justification. And the links in the chain are marvelously joined together in Paul's thinking about the gospel. And he's asking the question, is there a weak link in the chain when it's come to my own people? And his answer, of course, is no. There is no weak link in the chain. The reason is because having heard the gospel, they have not called on the name of the Lord. But you'll notice that in these words, Paul actually seems to imply, as he's raising the question, how is it that somebody comes to faith and enjoys the power of the gospel for salvation? And he seems to be just answering that question, that this is God's ordinary way of bringing salvation to us. And if that's the case, which I believe it is, you will notice that he is implying that the gospel wouldn't be the gospel unless the messengers of the gospel brought that gospel so that people heard it, understood it, believed it, and called upon the name of the Lord. He is really saying to us, if people are to be saved, then it is vital that they hear the gospel. He is implying in the tightness of these links in the chain that if people do not hear the gospel, we have no reason whatsoever to believe that there is any way in which they can be saved. Now, of course, it's true, our confession of faith, for those of us who are Presbyterians and those of us who are members of this particular church, our confession of faith says a very important thing. That is, that God is able to regenerate infants who die in infancy and those who otherwise are incapable of hearing the gospel, not geographically incapable of hearing the gospel, but congenitally incapable of hearing the gospel. And they say that because they believe that there are biblical hints that help us to understand that while this is God's ordinary way of salvation, God is not bound to that way of salvation in order to bring salvation, for example, to our infants who die in infancy. And that is glorious good news for those of us who may have lost infants in the womb or infants in infancy. But when he is thinking about people 
outside of those categories, the Apostle Paul holds out no hope whatsoever to us, no reason for us to believe that somebody who never hears the gospel will be saved. Now, of course, God may do what He pleases. I have no doubt whatsoever that God may do what He pleases. What I am saying is, He gives us no reason to believe that those who have never heard the gospel will be saved. Now you understand why at the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul speaks with this great sense of urgency. He knows no revelation of God that says those who hear the gospel will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and you don't need to worry about the rest. That's the very opposite of what drives the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's whole disposition, this is actually his argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, his whole assumption is that men and women without the gospel stand under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God, and apart from the gospel, we have no reason to think or hope that they can ever be saved. That's why it's so urgent for the gospel to be brought to the ends of the earth. That's why it's so urgent in our own day that the gospel be brought to the Islamic world, because we have no foundation in the Scriptures to believe that it's possible to be saved in any other way than by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And what's true of the Islamic world is true of men and women and boys and girls that you and I know in Columbia, South Carolina as well many of whom have never heard the gospel. And so we have no reason whatsoever to believe that God is going to do it some other way. That's why Paul says, I am debtor. Now, it's interesting. Paul was specifically called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles but he says he is a debtor to everyone to bring the gospel to them. That doesn't mean that we make up our own ways of bringing the gospel to them. We need to bring the whole wisdom of Scripture to bear on the way in which we bring the gospel to the people whom we know and the people whom we meet and the people whom we happen to bump in to, as it were, accidentally. We, we can't just say to ourselves, oh, I need to start bringing the gospel to people, and I'll do it in my own way. No, we need great wisdom to know how to do that with people with whom we will work day in and day out, but that we have a responsibility to bring the gospel to them. It's what creates that sense of drive and urgency and prayerfulness in the life of the Christian believer, that God would open up opportunities to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's what's driven the church's mission over the centuries. 
I heard just the other day of a group of Christian believers in an African country where their bishop was planning to send 500 of them into an area where every single one of them would undoubtedly jeopardize their lives for Jesus Christ. And somebody said to him, what are you doing planning to go there? That may be almost suicidal. And the good bishop's answer, unless they go there, the gospel will not come there. Unless the messengers are sent, the gospel will not be heard. Unless the gospel is heard, people will not call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. This is an issue more important than death, the bishop said. Do you know there was a day at Princeton Theological Seminary in the good old days in the 19th century when young men were lining out to go to the mission field, and many of them were dying there, and the more who died there, the more pressed forward for the privilege of serving Jesus Christ in this way. And we have been overtaken by what Sir Arnold Lunn calls in the title of his book, The Cult of Softness, haven't we? And we need to learn again from the Apostle Paul that these links in the chain are not accidental, and that you may be and I may be the vital link in the chain. But I don't find the gospel very easy to explain. I'm not very good at communicating. Nobody would listen to me. What about that old boy that got up that wintry day? and made a total hash of the text, and just kept speaking in order to keep speaking, and the young boy who was converted under his absolutely impoverished effort at preaching became the instrument of the salvation of countless thousands in the 19th century and every decade since. that would be a link in the chain worth being. I'll bet that fellow got a surprise when he went to heaven. (laughs) So, Paul implies that this is God's ordinary way of salvation, and it's in terms of God's ordinary way of salvation that we need to think. But a second thing this implies, which I personally, obviously, find very challenging, but I think it's challenging for all of us in the Christian church in these days. Paul seems to imply that there is a unique role for preaching here. Now, we mustn't say, of course Paul thought there was a unique role for preaching. He lived in the first century. Don't ever think that. Paul lived in one of the great centuries of drama, not one of the great centuries of preaching. So, when Paul sees there is a role for preaching here, he doesn't mean anything else except preaching. How are they going to hear unless there are preachers? And how are there going to be preachers unless they are sent? Well, does Paul not think we all need to be witnesses? Of course, Paul knows we all need to be witnesses. 
but he does seem to be suggesting that God has ordained preaching as a special instrument to open up the gospel, and in a public way, but in a completely private way for individuals, open up the hearts of individuals to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it really raises for us the question as a, as a church, as it certainly raises questions for churches in the United States today, I think we have lost the conviction that God uses preaching to bring salvation to sinners. I was speaking to somebody just a couple of days ago. He spoke to me about how their church, of which he's not the minister, but their church, seemed to have gone through a very difficult period, and so they quite seriously began to look at themselves. This church has been there for 30 or 35 years, he said. Do you know what we discovered? When we, when we asked honest questions, it dawned on us what was wrong. In the last 35 years, we could trace only two people who'd come to faith in Jesus Christ in the context of our congregation. And you know that's true of many churches. Most church growth is not by people being converted. Most church growth is either by people getting fed up and jumping ship, or people in our mobile society moving from one place to another. And what a sense of burden, therefore, there ought to be on those who preach. So to preach that people will be converted, not to assume, surely it's the most foolish thing in the world to assume for a preacher that everyone sitting before you already knows Jesus Christ. Let me tell you another Spurgeon story. You can tell almost any story about Spurgeon, actually. He published about 60-odd volumes of sermons, read five difficult books a week, had a completely photographic memory, and wrote many, many, many other books. The man was a complete genius, and so there's so much to know about him. You could almost say Spurgeon did anything, and hardly anybody would ever be able to say, I know he didn't do this, but I know Spurgeon did this. A younger preacher came to see him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I see that when you preach, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But when I preach, nobody seems to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon was a, was a shrewd old boy. He said, uh, young man, he said, you surely don't expect people to be converted when you preach? Well, the young fellow was embarrassed. Oh, I'm sure I should never have said that to the great Mr. Spurgeon. I've said the wrong thing again. No, 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 Mr. Spurgeon. I don't believe that people will be converted. Well, you know what Spurgeon said, don't you? He said, perhaps that's the reason they're not. Words, as my wife is constantly saying to me, quoting our fellow countryman Robert Murray McChain, it's not many words. You can understand why she says this to me. It's not many words that God uses, but listen to this, words spoken in faith. Now, that applies as much to your personal witness as it does 
to my public preaching? Is it in faith? Are we looking to the Lord to use His Word? Do we really believe in, in encouraging people to come under the sound of the gospel, as people used to say, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to sense the gospel? It is a benediction, my friends, it's a benediction beyond words to have the privilege of preaching the gospel in a place where people believe the gospel and live the gospel so that those who hear the gospel can see the gospel and put the two things together because it's terrible to try and do it in any other circumstance. But we need to believe that God will do it because he responds to faith. He loves to see faith. He loves to hear us saying, Lord, we really believe that you are able to do this, because you see, when God does this, it transforms the church. A church where people believe that people can be converted, although they haven't seen anybody converted for ages, is a church that tends to become dead. But a church where people are converted under the whole ministry of the church and under the preaching of the Word becomes a church that begins to believe that people become Christians here. And the church that believes that people become Christians here is the church that tends to grow and welcome those who aren't Christians. And God, who has given this special place to the public opening out of the Scriptures and applying of the Scriptures in this public way to private hearts, is so pleased to work when His people look to Him and say, Lord, we believe You can do this. You have been doing it. It's the most marvelously refreshing thing for a, a Christian congregation to, to have babies born in it, just as the same is true of families. Some of you have had babies born in your family, and it, it changes everything, doesn't it? The whole family is rearranged in a, yes, a challenging way, but a gloriously joyful and exciting way. You start text messaging the other side of the country when that happens. And you see, that's actually what happens in revival. That's all revival is, at least in the past. God brought salvation in this area, so they started text messaging. They had to use long hand and letters, of course, but they, they started communicating and saying, God is doing something among us. Is God doing something among you? So while the apostle is specially interested here, of course, in his own people. He wants to emphasize first that these links are the ordinary way in which God brings salvation. Second, that there is a unique role for preaching. And thirdly, he implies, I believe, that there is something very unique happens when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm about to say is a matter of interpretation, and the interpretation I'm going to give to Paul is uh, not held by all New Testament scholars, but it's held by uh, many good New Testament scholars. 
The other view is also held by many good New Testament scholars. But if you look at the bottom of the page, I think you should see something in footnote 4. And footnote 4 is related to verse 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, you'll notice footnote 4, if you've got good eyesight, says there's an alternative way to translate the Greek here. And there is an alternative way to translate the Greek here. I needn't go into the technicalities of it. And the alternative way to translate the Greek, which you find in some of the English versions, is how can they believe in him whom they have never heard? Now, there doesn't seem to be much difference, does there? But the difference is this. How can they come to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Never heard about Jesus. How can they come to believe in him? That's true. But I think what Paul is saying here is more than that, because you actually don't come to believe in Jesus just by hearing about him. You come to believe in Jesus by hearing him. And I think that's what he's saying here. How can they believe in him whom they've never heard? Now, you know, some of us have been have never known a day when we didn't trust Christ, but others of us have, have been through all kinds of things, and, and we've had a very clear transition from not being a Christian to being a Christian. Just think back to that transition. What was one of the things that happened to you? You began to hear another voice, didn't you? Perhaps you were a regular churchgoer, and the sermons were kind of out there, they were bad or they were good, they were interesting or they were uninteresting, they were long or they were very long. And then almost before you noticed it, let me put it like this, you totally lost sight of the fact that the fellow had a Scottish accent because you weren't really hearing his accent, you were hearing Christ. Paul speaks about this, I think, again in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, when Christ had finished his work, he came and preached peace to those of you who are near, Jews, to those of you who are afar off. This is what happens. This is how we are drawn into Christ's kingdom, isn't it? And actually, the great news is this is how it goes on. This is what makes sense of what I'm doing in this pulpit or what any of our ministers are doing in this pulpit. We're not stuffing people's heads with information about the Bible. We're not giving Bible lectures interesting or not interesting. We're, as it were, giving Jesus' Word back to Him so that Jesus Himself, His own voice, his sheep recognize his voice, and you sense that the Lord is speaking to you. That's the only thing that keeps me sane when I look out on this congregation, particularly on a Sunday morning, and I, I see people who have, who have harvested the resources of the week to be here, and I see people who are hurting, and I know the Word is going to cut deeply. 
And I think, oh Lord, why does it have to be like that when what he needs, when what she needs is a word of gentle confirmation to lift their spirits? And lo and behold, what happens? When Jesus speaks, that's the only thing that matters because his sheep hear his voice. And no matter what he says, his sheep say, Lord Jesus, thank you for being with me. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you that you understand me. And he uses his word in all these amazing ways. Absolutely amazing to hear the kind of rabbit trails that the Holy Spirit follows when God's word is being preached and fun in a kind of perverse way when people say to you at the door, who's been speaking to you about me this week? Well, the answer is probably everybody if you feel that guilty, but the answer's nobody. Or when somebody says, you know, that was just for me, and I might say, well, that's the first I heard of it. I had no idea who it was for. Doesn't that make you… Now, you're all wanting to get into this pulpit to see what that feels like from this side. It is, it, it's a romance and a mystery beyond words. I sometimes wish that every single member got one opportunity to preach, to experience the burden. And if the burden didn't crush, another opportunity to experience the sheer mystery of the way in which the Lord Jesus takes the loaves and fish that His servants offer to Him and keeps on multiplying it and multiplying it. And say, this is for you and this is for you because He's all sufficient for all of us. And you know how that happens. We are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. So how are we going to be raised up when we are dead and when we are deaf? Jesus is going to speak life into us. Remember how he did it with Lazarus? I mean, the people standing by must have thought, Jesus has lost the place. You remember what they had said when he said, roll that stone away? They had said in the authorized version, which puts it in such a dramatic way, Lord, he stinketh. And then he did the most senseless thing man could do. He spoke to the corpse that was totally dead and dead deaf. And the deaf heard the voice and lived. It was the voice that resurrected Lazarus. Just like you remember when you wanted to sleep in and it was school time and uh, you were fast asleep and then some strange things got into your dreams and then you realized your mother had been trying to waken you up for the last five minutes. What was it that wakened you up? What actually was it gave you those strange dreams? It was the voice of your mother calling you from your slumber into the life of the day. And that's what God does through His Word in the power of His Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us, and I just need to move on to these vital questions. Actually, Paul asks four of them, and uh, at this stage it's worth noting the first is in verse 18, the second in verse 19, 
The third is in chapter 11, verse 1, and the fourth is in chapter 11, verse 11, and they all begin the same way. But I ask, but I ask. I ask then, I ask then. He's probing here. He's saying, if this is how God has done it, where is the problem? It isn't that they've never heard, is it? And his, the very way in which he puts the question expects the answer, no, it's not that they have never heard. Indeed, the Scriptures say, and he uses the 19th Psalm here, I think as a way of describing what is happening to the gospel. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. Well, then he says, is it perhaps that Israel didn't understand? Not understand, he says. Listen to what Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. It was already there in the Scriptures. And then Isaiah says, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask me. Your own Scriptures prophesy what's happening here that the gospel is running the beautiful feet of those who preach the gospel. It's all your own Scriptures that prophesy this. Don't you see that the Scriptures are being fulfilled? Oh, alas, you don't see that the very Scriptures God has given to you are being fulfilled. And so again, a citation from the Old Testament Scriptures in verse 21 this time so marvelously from the prophecy of Isaiah. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands. Here's the issue. To a disobedient, because they won't come to the obedience of faith, and a contrary people, because they resist the crucified Savior, and the way of salvation that God has provided in Him. Everything was out there in front of them. The problem was in here. The heart of the problem, as we say, was the problem of their hearts. I don't think I should finish tonight unless I also ask you, are all the connections in place for you? God has sent the gospel. He has sent a messenger with the gospel to you. It might be ministers you've had. It might be new friends that you've made. It might be the way in which you've begun to be surrounded in an extraordinary way with Christian people. And God has sent the gospel to you. And yet you're not yet a Christian. Where is the problem? The problem is not in the chain that God has used to bring the gospel to you. The problem is that He's holding out His hands all day long to you, and saying, look to me, call upon me, come to me, trust in me. 
And there are all these different reasons why you are resisting. You've never done it before. It would be embarrassing to do it. What would people say if they discovered now that I'd actually never been a Christian when I begin to say, I think I've just been a Christian? It may be the cost of it. It may be what it would do, all the ways in which your life would be rearranged in all kinds of unexpected ways. It may be just that the thing you cannot bear about becoming a Christian is that you would lose control of your life and Christ would take control of your life. Well, it could be different tonight. It could be of all the amazing places for it to happen. That it would be in the middle of Romans 10 and then to its end that you first called on the name of the Lord. My eyesight's not that good, but maybe you do look a bit miserable up there in the gallery or underneath the gallery. And the reason is you're not looking to Him to be saved. Why don't you do it tonight? be the beginning of a new life for you, a new family. We would delight to know that a baby has been born in this room, in our church. So look to Him. Trust in Him. Come to Him, won't you? You'll never regret it nor will he. He'll never regret it, and he'll never cast you out. That's the kind of Savior he is. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word and for this mystery about its teaching and exposition that it finds each of us where we are and brings each of us to the same Savior and Lord. We praise you tonight that Jesus is able to receive all who come to him, that he's able to pardon all of us, however badly we have failed and sinned, that he's able to change us, that he's able to help us to delight in knowing him and trusting him and loving him. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, those of us who have never trusted in Christ may be helped to trust him tonight. Those of us who have ceased believing that you bring men and women and boys and girls to a living faith in our church or churches may be wonderfully brought to believe that you are at work among us. Make us, we pray, a maternity hospital. Give us babies, we pray that we may rejoice in all the rearrangements that need to be made because you are our Father 
and you have brought us into your family. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.